When we were recently on vacation, I saw a sign that I had not seen in a very long time, and it made me chuckle. It was the standard hotel room warning against hanging your clothes from the emergency sprinkler on the ceiling. Every time I see that, I think there's, I mean, there's a story behind every warning sign, right? And this story is that at some point, it was fairly common. People go, oh, that's very convenient of them. Boom, and then, and now we're filling the whole room with, with water. I did a little deep dive, and I learned that these emergency sprinkler systems are far older than I ever would have thought. According to Wikipedia, and you know you're getting the best information because anybody can write anything, it says, Leonardo da Vinci designed a sprinkler system in the 5th century, automated in a patron's kitchen with a super oven, whatever that is, and a system of conveyor belts. In a comedy of errors, everything went wrong during a huge banquet and a fire broke out. The sprinkler system worked all too well, causing a flood that washed away all the food and a good part of the kitchen. Citation needed. <laughs> then in the 19th century, what we more or less have as the modern emergency sprinkler system was developed, in which there are uh, pipes connecting them and, and each sprinkler head, there is either a little glass disc or a little glass bulb keeping the water at bay, kind of wedged in there. And when it heats to a certain point, it just gives way and out comes the water. So each sprinkler actually operates independently. They don't all come on like they do hilariously in the movies. And it was funny to me, I saw that and I thought about how I used to see that sign a lot more frequently if we were traveling around in the summer and stuff, and how I never think about these sprinkler systems. They're there, but you only think about them if they go off. Otherwise, maybe once in a while you look, Bob, yeah, I'll be all right if there's a, a fire. But generally, it's just not on your mind. And I think that's how a lot of people view their faith. It's something they installed when they came to faith, when they believed in Jesus and said a prayer or, or filled out a card, and now it's installed and they only need it if and when they are in danger of the fires of hell at the moment of their death, probably when, ah, here comes the emergency sprinkler system that I installed years ago that was very smart of me. Well, this passage is going to urge us or implore us or command us to think of faith in very different terms. Not as something that just sits there and pops to uh, use when we need it, but something that we are to take up and hold up daily and day after day. And when we say faith here, we don't mean the faith, which is somehow, sometimes how this is taught, how it is preached. Uh, in, in Ephesians 4, he uses the, the word faith to mean the content of the Christian doctrine, right? The faith, once we're all handed down to the saints, as Jude says. That's not what we're talking about here. That was the belt of truth. Or, or even maybe the sword of the Spirit to some extent. It's the, the content of God's word. This is not the faith, but faith. Simple trust in God. Receiving Christ and all the benefits of his crucifixion on your behalf, his resurrection for your justification, his continual sitting at the right hand of God, making intercession on your behalf, this belief in every word and every promise that God has uttered, that God, for Christ's sake, has blotted out your sin and my sin and redeemed us and adopted us as his children. That faith is at the heart of the faith, but what's more important to Paul here is that that faith 
is at the heart of every believer. That we put into action and hold up a constant and active faith in God. Now, it probably wouldn't cross your mind at all otherwise, but I can't begin a discussion of this text without addressing the first two words, which are here, in all, and it goes on, in all circumstances. In most texts, you will find either in all or above all. The older the translation, the more likely it's going to say, above all this, put on the shield of faith, or take up the shield of faith. Above all. And so you have commentators and preachers and professors saying, hold on, make sure that you don't think he's saying that this is more important. Above all, as in above the value of righteousness and truth and the gospel of preparedness, the gospel of peace, but rather in addition, like above all in the sense that you're putting it on over top of the rest of the armor. You got all this armor, then you take the shield and you put it up above it in some sense. Okay, others have gone the other direction. Matthew Henry, for example, says, above all, or chiefly, taking the shield of faith, because it is more necessary than any of the others. Newer Bible translations like this one don't seem to get into the fray at all. They say, in all things or in all circumstances. And that's because newer Bible translations are based on older manuscripts that we've discovered. And they don't say, epi posin, above all. They say, en posin, in all things, in all circumstances, all the same, above all, isn't too far off base. This is insanely important. It's vital. And the shield was the Roman legionary's most important piece of equipment. If you said to him, I'm taking your sword or your shield before you go into battle, ten times out of ten, they would give you the sword and hold on to the shield. As long as he had his shield, he was secure. And as long as a Christian has faith, he or she is secure, ready for an attack from anywhere at any time. Now we need to talk about the logistics of the Roman shield as we have been. And half of you find it fascinating, I'm sure, and the other half of you are rolling your eyes back into your skull. Try to be the first category. The Roman soldier had two different types of shield. One was called a buckler, and it was a small, round uh, tapered shield strapped onto the arm for use in real close hand-to-hand, -hand. you know, this kind of like parry thrust, huzzah kind of thing. And that was becoming more and more just part of like a dress uniform for parades and things at this point because of the way that, that Roman warfare had been developing. But it was not a new thing. All the way back to the Old Testament, we have the pairing of the buckler and the shield. God is often called the shield and buckler. For example, in Psalm 90, his faithfulness is a shield and buckler for us. But the one he's talking about here is the other shield, the scutum romanum in Latin. It's not a round shield. It's not a, a badge shape, or we might even say shield-shaped shield. It's actually door-shaped. And you say, that's, that's weird. Well, I'm saying door-shaped because the word thurios comes from the Greek word thura, which means door. So they would say, yeah, grab that door shield and let's go. That tells you how big it was. Granted, I mean, it was two and a half feet by four feet tall, so it'd be like a little hobbit door. But, I mean, it's, it's, like, a, it's like a door compared to your average shield. And it was solid. Two or three layers of wood 
And, and it would be a very solid type of wood glued together with ox glue. If it was three layers, it would be one this way, one this way, one this way with the, the uh, grain of the wood so that it would further strengthen it. Then there would be a layer of linen and then finally wrapped with a layer of veal leather. They were so big that there are accounts of Roman legionaries as they attacked Germanic villages Fording rivers are actually crossing rivers on their shields as if they were little canoes in order to stealthily attack. It's probably not true, but it's telling that that was believable to people who were familiar with these troops and these types of shields. Now, it was like a door in the sense that it was big and it was rectangular, but it was unlike a door in the, in the sense that it was kind of rounded in this way. It, it curved back toward the one using the shield. They would heat the wood and form it into shape. And this, this curving had two functions. First of all, it made it more protective. Now you've got kind of, you can get into the shield rather than just hold it in front of you. And you have to remember, an average size guy like me would have five to seven inches on your average Roman legionary. Don't get me wrong, they would still very quickly and very easily kill me, but they could also more easily get down behind a four-foot-tall shield so that it protected the entirety of this person. Not all that stood out was perhaps there was a little bit down at the ankles where the, the greaves would be, and then there was just a little bit above the shield where the helmet would be, and sometimes they would wedge it into the ground and get all the way down behind it, especially if they were in one of these formations where everyone was using their shields in concert. But more about that in a while. But it would be almost like carrying a little fort with you. That you could just, boom, there, I, I'm, I'm now protected from whatever is coming this way. The other benefit of the curved design was kind of shock absorption. So that if someone runs into you, it kind of holds firm a little bit better. And you're less likely to be driven back. This design is still used today if you look at uh, pictures of police with riot shields. There's a, a curve to it. They would be then decorated in red and yellow, these colors of the imperial Rome, with different designs for different units, and they would be really impressive. And of course, they were so disciplined that if you were facing a Roman legion in battle, you would see a perfectly organized, perfectly linked up, just wall of shields with these big, aggressive designs along the front of them, and it would be intimidating to the enemy. So who's the enemy here? Again, some translations will say this will extinguish the flaming darts or the flaming arrows of the wicked, which is quite literally, woodenly, what the text says. Tupaneru of the wicked. Most translations, like the ESV, I think get it more accurate of the wicked one, or of the evil one. This is one of these weird situations in Greek where it could be either plural or singular, but it seems to be singular. And when we say of the wicked, that could be a very general thing, or it could be very specific. And again, I think we want to, to see that it's very specific. Because this is what's called, now don't, don't check out. I'm going to say some grammar stuff real quick. It's called a substantive, which is when you take an adjective and it acts like a noun. We have it in our language, we do it all the time. She's a local. A local what? Well, a local person. You fill it in. Or, waitress, I'll have my usual. Your usual what? My usual meal. That's the context, right? So when we, we talk about the evil, it's the evil one. Who's the evil one? Well, the one we've been talking about here, the enemy, Satan. Or perhaps 
any principality, power, ruler over this present darkness and this evil age. This is the enemy. And so when we pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. By the way, it's the exact same words there, tupaneru. And even though we recite the King James Version and say deliver us from evil, it sounds like a very broad prayer. Probably the best translation is deliver us from the evil one, the enemy who can come at us with any kind of evil. So it works all the same. But we might say to ourselves, hold on, why are we praying deliver us from the evil one? And, and then at the same time, Paul's saying, listen, you've got to deal with the evil one. You've got to be ready. This seems to almost contradict. Is God going to deliver us and we don't have to deal with him? Or are we going to take up a shield and we've got to go into battle ourselves? Well, these things are not at odds. And you have to go back into the Old Testament and see how the word shield is used. And it's used a lot to describe God. This idea of God being a shield comes up again and again and again in the Old Testament, especially in the book of Psalms. But you see in 2 Samuel 22, we read, As for God, his way is perfect. He is a shield for all who take refuge in him. Or Psalm 3, But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. Or one of the very, very few times that Solomon, while writing Proverbs, quotes his old man from Psalms, is when he says, the Lord is a shield to all them that put their trust in him. It's Proverbs and it's Psalms. It's wisdom and it's worship for us to view God as our shield. And that is significant. And then in Psalm 18, 35, we read, you give me your shield of victory and your right hand sustains me. And we say, okay, that's both those things. God's hand is holding us up. He delivers us. But also he gives us his shield so that as we go through life, we are protected. And there is no real difference then between David calling God our shield and Paul referring to our faith as a shield. After all, what is faith but the thing that puts us behind God and his protective might? So that St. John can both tell us that Jesus said these words, take heart, for I have overcome the world. And then in his epistle say, this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Our faith has overcome the world. Jesus says, I have overcome the world. Right, it's our faith in the fact that Jesus has overcome the world. They're one and the same in practice. And so we can see in 2 Thessalonians 3, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. God will guard you against the evil one. And that's the same apostle who tells us here to stand firm and take up the shield of faith to protect ourselves against the darts of the evil one. We need this shield because the schemes of the devil, which he's already mentioned, are continually flying in our direction like flaming darts. Now we've got to talk about the flaming darts. The, the Greek word here, belos, can signify any kind of missile either thrown by hand, like a, a short spear or a javelin that would come at you, or uh, a, an arrow coming from a bow, or even other things. But here it's very clear what he means, the fiery dart. The fiery dart was not just an arrow dipped in tar and then lit on fire like you might see in movies today. It was actually far more uh, intricate. It, it was either a thin piece of cane filled with something combustible, and then lit on fire and, and fired. Or, or there was a far more advanced version that was fairly common. It had like a cargo bay in the arrow behind the arrowhead, which whenever I picture it, it reminds me of when I was a kid, or even today, I'll admit, and I was into model rocketry, 
and we would shoot off these model rockets and then have a little cargo bay behind the fuselage and you could put stuff in it. I remember one time me and my buddy uh, Bray put a uh, Bart Simpson keychain in it. It was too heavy and it made the whole thing spin out. And then we said, ooh, I have an idea. And we put a bottle rocket in it and launched it up and then it exploded. And that's kind of what's happening here, I suppose. So there'd be this kind of little cargo bay and, and it would be a kind of weak, but it would hold in flight. And in it, they would put a tow, which would, would be kind of strips of uh, strands of hemp or flax soaked in mutton fat. They'd stick it in there, they'd ignite it, and it wouldn't go out in flight. So these arrows would come and they would glow as they came through the air and then just pancake and, and there'd be a kind of explosion, a fireball of burning tallow upon impact. Very effective in ancient warfare, especially for burning up an enemy's war engines or tents or ships or anything flammable that you might want to burn up. The Parthians were the main eastern enemy of Rome at this time, and their armies were full of these horseback archers. And they would often shoot flaming darts and arrows. And if they stuck into an ordinary wooden shield and it started on fire, that person would have to ditch their shield. And now that person is defenseless on the battlefield. This meant that the Roman legion had to figure out how to deal with flaming arrows and flaming darts. And what they did is up for discussion. I think this is one of these situations where we have the Christian urban legend that's been repeated so many times that it, it's quoted by people that you trust, and you go, okay, this is what's going on. Yeah, there was a tiny little gate in the wall of Jerusalem called the Eye of the Needle, and you had to take all the stuff off your camel before you could put it through, and that's what it means when the camel goes, nope, that's not true. Or, this is my favorite one, the high priest had a rope tied to his ankle, so that if he went to the Holy of Holies and he was offering and he died, they'd pull him out. Yeah, who's in charge of the temple? Like a wily e. coyote? This is another one of those things, I, I believe. I, I've heard again and again and read again and again and again over my life as a Christian that the Roman soldiers would soak their shields in water so the leather would just suck up water. And then if a flaming arrow came and hit it, it would go out instantly. Instantly, immediately extinguished. In fact, I even heard a message called, Be sure to soak your shields. And it was about, like, the prayer or Bible reading or whatever we soak our faith in. I don't know. This is one of those getting away from the Bible into crazy make-em-ups type things. I've never seen a primary source that says this, and it seems odd to me. Because I know for a fact that Roman soldiers frequently would anoint their shields and rub them with oil to keep the, the leather on the outside supple. And it seems to me then that putting it into water would repel the water like, uh, like oil and water, right? Also, even if they could soak up water, have you ever had leather that was waterlogged? Can you imagine bringing something that heavy into battle and trying to carry it around? It's foolish. In addition, the hide glue that they used was water-soluble, which means if you put it in there long enough, the thing would just start to come apart, which is why when they carried it, they'd put it in a weatherproofed leather kind of backpack, carry it on their backs as they marched around. Now you might say, hold on, if it was so fragile and, and susceptible to water, what about that shield canoes thing? Well, even if that did happen, it just proves that the water didn't soak into the leather, but rather that it was more or less weatherproof. But if the only thing soaking into this leather is oil, Oil burns, right? In fact, the main source of, of 
artificial light was a, an oil lamp. And you'd think that then with a, a burning arrow, <laughs> a shield that was very well oiled, it would just bring into to flames. So I don't want to drop names or anything, but in order to get to the bottom of this, I called you know, New York Times bestselling author Cliff Graham, who's a friend of mine, who knows about all this stuff. He's an expert in this sort of thing. And he told me that, yes, they did not soak these shields in water. They oiled them a lot, but not with olive oil or something very flammable. They would render oil from like animal guts in a way that made it non-flammable, which is kind of gross, but also very convenient. And what would happen then is that the, the arrow, if a burning arrow struck the shield, it would strike something that was not flammable. It wouldn't immediately extinguish it in an instant, but it could just burn itself out against the shield without hurting the man behind it. Because he's like, almost he's behind a wall at this point. Now put a pin in that. It will be important on a spiritual level in a while. I'm not just giving you information for information's sake. In fact, even though Hollywood likes to portray flaming arrows raining down on troops all the time because it looks cool, it doesn't make a lot of sense to do. They're expensive, they're hard to make, they're hard to manage, and to shoot them at infantry is kind of a waste of such things. These are for lighting larger uh, objects on fire. And so it was possible then that from time to time Roman soldiers would, would find flaming arrows coming at them personally. Paul is probably sort of mixing metaphors here. And that's okay. He's an apostle, not a military strategist. And this is the devil attacking in this text, not the Gauls or the Parthians. And it's a spiritual metaphor. And as a spiritual metaphor, it's fitting. It's perfect. First of all, these arrows that come from the enemy come suddenly, like arrows. Boom, there it is. There's no warning, not even a bang when a dart is thrown or an arrow is, is let loose. Here it comes. And we have to be ready with the shield of faith at the moment that it comes. We don't have time to pull it up. Secondly, they pierce and penetrate, leaving deep wounds in our souls. And thirdly, when they have pierced us, they are burning and enkindle our worst fleshly appetites, and these flames engulf us. Our only defense in these moments is the shield of faith and to have already taken it up. This confidence in God, relying entirely on His gracious promises. Hence, deliver us from the evil one, even while we take up the shield of faith. It's not, watch this, Lord, I'm going to beat the devil at his own game. It's, Lord, deliver me in the battle. It's not by our own strength. And if we have no faith in God, we are entirely defenseless. By faith, then, it says we are able, able to extinguish all the burning arrows or flaming darts of the devil. We are able to extinguish all of them. Some translations just say you may. By which you may put out into us. It sounds like, oh, I may or I may not. No, it says you are able. Dunamis. This is, this is you are powerful to do this. By faith, you can accomplish this. And this is why our faith is so central and why it's perfect that it's pictured as the shield, the most important of all the pieces of armor for a Roman legionary. And why in all situations and above all, we must take up our shield and hang on to that shield because the helmet protects the head, the breastplate, the heart and lungs, but the shield protects everything. This is not in addition to this stuff, 
take up the shield of faith as well as a redundancy, but rather as our first line of defense to protect our whole person because the shield covered and protected not only the soldier, but all the other parts of his armor. If your faith slips, righteousness suffers. If you let your faith down, your readiness gives way under your feet. If your faith slips out, the truth's grip on you loosens. All of these things are covered by faith. Albert Barnes, in his commentary, says, Faith is the defense and guardian of every other Christian grace, and it secures the protection which the Christian needs in the whole of the spiritual war. Adam Clark, I think, says it even a little better. As faith is the grace by which all others are preserved and rendered active... So it is properly represented here under the notion of a shield by which the whole body is covered and protected. Our faith, like the Roman shield, is indispensable, and without it, we are indefensible. Sorry, I'm a Baptist pastor. I have to do that once in a while. You have no defense without faith. You are walking around begging to take a flaming arrow in the neck, and at that time, all we can do is say, I should have had my faith up and turned to God for healing. Practically speaking, though, what, what does this look like? We're speaking in, in very abstract terms about flaming arrows. What's it look like in someone's life? Well, primarily in view, I believe, are temptations. What the old divines used to call excitements to sin. I think that this sort of thing is very fittingly pictured as flaming arrows. James in his letter, talks about how there are sins that we commit with the tongue. And he compares it to how there's a little spark. And one little spark then kindles into a fire. And then a huge blazing inferno. And that's how this sort of thing starts. Yes, that's true about gossip and, and slander and, and words of malice and hatred. And that's just one example of many, many sins that begin this way. With a flaming dart that's very small and looks insignificant, but then bursts into a roaring inferno. In fact, the scriptures talk about inflaming the passions. The lusts of mankind are said to burn. The first little bit of the fuel may come externally in a flaming dart from the evil one. But when it connects and begins to burn, it's not any longer that tallow that's burning. It's now internal. It's now us. And now the fire begins to spread. And it might be any form of sin. It may, be, it may be greed. That can burn and burn hotter and hotter. It might be cowardice. It might be gossip. Like a wildfire, gossip can spread, right? It starts little with just, don't tell anyone. This is the strictest confidence. And for some reason, we've made this one cute and funny. And yet it is deadly as any other sin. It might be wrath or unbelief. Or rebellion. When you reach a point of, you know what, I don't even care. I'm tired of rejecting what my flesh wants. I'm just going to do it. God, if God loves me, he'll understand. It might be envy and covetousness. If there's anything that social media has shown us, it's that this will burn and burn hotter and hotter the more fuel we give it. And the, the fuel eventually becomes ourselves, our souls. It might be vanity. And by that, I don't mean arrogance or thinking you're very, very good-looking, I mean emptiness, right? I think that's a, another result of things like social media, where in our world more and more, we're consumed with things that don't matter at all. A chasing after the wind, who cares? But I'll pour myself into it and let it burn and burn away the days that God has given me. 
television, flipping channels, flipping through an endless feed on my phone or computer. In addition to temptations, the devil also hurls flaming darts of guilt and shame. And this goes right back to his very nature, and as we said last week, his, his very titles in the scriptures. And when he does this, it's a blasphemous mockery of the work of the Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit will convict you of sin to lead you to repentance and reconciliation with God. The enemy points at your sin to lead you to despair and hopelessness. The former has the result of, of provoking you to pick up your shield and your sword and get back into the battle and redouble your efforts, knowing you're spoken for in Christ. The latter has the effect of steering you toward just giving up the fight entirely. Again, our faith in Christ and what he has accomplished for us puts out all of the flaming darts of the enemy. Faith holds firm to God during seasons of temptation or doubt or depression and quenches these burning darts. Now, I think we need to get back then and talk about this word quenches. This is where we come back to the water-soaked shield motif. Because when I've heard that, I've often thought, wait a minute, I'm doing it wrong. Or there's something wrong with me. Or something wrong with my faith. Because if, if it's the water-soaked thing, and the moment, the moment one of the devil's flaming arrows strikes, it's, it's out, it's gone, that means that I don't even struggle with any attacks from the enemy. I don't struggle with temptation. I don't struggle with despair. I don't struggle with doubt and unbelief. I don't, and if it, if it comes my way, my shield must be faulty. I say, oh yeah, no big deal. I, I barely even remember the devil and his, and his attacks, his flaming arrows. Temptations, <laughs> accusations, <laughs> in fact, that's the sound they make as they just kind of disappear right into my shield of faith. That's not what we're talking about here with quenches or extinguishes. It's not always instant, like dropping a match into a bowl of water. Sometimes this word can refer to snuffing out a flame in kind of an instant. When we read that, that the Lord will not uh, snuff out the smoldering wick. Very same word. But also, when we read in Matthew 25, uh, in the parable of the, the virgins and the oil lamps, right? The ones who weren't prepared say to the other ones, they say, give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. The word there is the same Greek word. They're quenching. They're quenching themselves. It's, they're, they're slowly smoldering out. No one's putting them out. And sometimes that's what it looks like to struggle with temptation or to struggle with other demonic attacks and schemes. Don't let this passage set up an expectation that if temptation comes and you're not completely impervious to it, that you don't have faith. We read in Hebrews 11 about those who had great, great faith. It's often called the Hall of Faith. It's just uh, sentence after sentence after sentence of these heroes of the Old Testament. And then he gets to the end and he realizes he doesn't have room to talk about everybody in depth. And so he says, what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war. And we say, what was he talking about with quenched the fire? Probably Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? In the furnace. And yet the flames didn't go out the moment they were thrown in. They were undoubtedly, we know that they were sweating it. 
probably literally, but they said to him, our God can deliver us, and he might, but either way, we're not going to bow to you. And so they were thrown in, and they took up the shield of faith in the face of actual physical fire. Taking up the shield is the thing we're commanded to do here, and it finally is an actual command. Remember I said before, stand was the command, and then there were modifiers. Having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having underbound your feet with the readiness of the gospel of peace, now, here's another command, take up the shield of faith. Take it up. That was all preparation. Now we're into the action. Now, how do you take up one of these massive shields? What do you suppose it looks like on the back? You may imagine a kind of couple of leather straps that are vertical, and you put your arm through one and hold on to the other one. Not the case. It's, it's curved, remember. That would be weird. You'd be like this, trying to do it. Rather, there's one handle horizontal down here. And you grab that, and you pull it up. And this thing weighs like 20 pounds, not soaking wet. And as you pick it up, you'd often rest it against your shoulder, maybe, to bear some of the weight. Or again, they would wedge it into the ground, and it would become immovable. But taking it up is the, is the command. The shield enveloped, ensconced the entire person in the same way faith envelops the entire person as we take it up. The strategy, of course, was to stay behind the shield. We have to do the same. We don't trust our own understanding, our own cleverness, our own righteousness, our own evolved view of things. No, we trust in Christ. On Christ the solid rock I stand, we just sung. All other ground is sinking sand. In Psalm 18:2, we read, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. See, our shield and our stronghold. Like I said, it's like carrying the fort with you. That's what our faith is when we take it up. And maybe as much as take it up, we need to put ourselves down behind it. Putting ourselves in humility to the, to the ground. Taking up the shield of faith is an act of will. It is not something that you install once, and then later on it's just there, running in the background. This is something that we daily do, and the daily exercising of this faith is proof of the saving initial faith that we had and put in, in, in Christ Jesus. When someone says, you know, I said a prayer back in 92, I'm good. I don't have to think about this stuff. I don't have to worry about exercising faith now. When facing an enemy as deadly as ours, a false assurance is no better than a lack of assurance. Maybe even worse. Take that shield up and keep that shield up. Remember the words of Peter. In 1 Peter 5, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith. Your faith rooted in front of you. It's by faith that we enter the conscious presence of God. Faith opens our eyes to this unseen reality of another world. It's by faith that we see Christ's protection of his church. Our faith is holding that protection up as our great defense against the enemy. 
Spurgeon wrote, when temptation to love the world comes in, when faith holds up thoughts of the future and confidence of the reward that awaits the people of God and enables the Christian to esteem the reproach of Christ's greater riches than all the treasures of Egypt, so the heart is protected. When the temptation of the world comes in, we hold up the shield of faith as thoughts of future confidence, present reality, victory, that we are more than conquerors, as Scripture commands or promises us. Trying to dislodge a wicked thought from the flesh or a, a sinful appetite or a selfish ambition or, or selfish pride, it's all pointless. You can't, you can't pull these things out on your own. They stay and they ignite the individual. We can't walk around saying, I'll deal with that when it comes. The shield of faith quenches these things and they burn themselves out. And if we've learned anything by cinema in the last 20 years or so, it's how cool and satisfying it is when somebody's got a bunch of arrows in their shield and they take out the sword and just go cut them all off. Perhaps that's the effect that the sword of the spirit has after the shield of faith has quenched the flaming arrows of our enemy. The shield must be well constructed, of course. If you walk in with a discount shield, you may find yourself uh, going down before anyone else in that legion does. And spiritually, that does not come down to how strong is my faith, but rather, in whom am I believing? That's what your faith is made of. There are two ways to go about this, or three, I suppose. There's believing in a false god or, or some god that cannot save you. There's believing in yourself, which is one of the virtues of our world, but certainly not of the scriptures. Luke 18, remember, Jesus told his parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And that's when he talks about the tax collector and the Pharisee praying in the temple. We have to put our faith in one who is worthy of that faith. Think about that horrible, horrible tragedy this past week where the building collapsed. Undoubtedly, everyone there thought, I can lie here, I can take my weight. It's, it's a building. I hope we're all praying for those people daily and for their, their families uh, who have lost people. And, and who knows if perhaps there's some still alive, we, we can hold out hope. But we have to put our faith in something that will hold us up, something that has proven to be strong for all eternity, will truly withstand so we can stand on the evil day. Now there's one more aspect of the Roman shield, which was well known to everyone in the first century Roman Empire, and I think it might be worth talking about for a moment too. And that is that the Roman soldiers would, would move in a phalanx, meaning a, a tight formation. And your shield, then, was equally important protecting you and providing protection for the right half of the body to the soldier at your immediate left. They would come very close together. This, too, by the way, is still in, in practice as a tactic for riot police. There'd be walls of shields, and, and there was different formations. The most famous is probably the testudo, which means tortoise. The most iconic, you've, you've seen pictures of this, where the guys in front interlock and there's this wall of shields and just little maybe spears coming out and you're like, I'm not getting near that thing. And then everyone behind, tightly uh, gathered together, has their, their shields up on top. And, then on the, and, and it's an impenetrable little thing that, that you can't, rocks can't get through it, javelin can't get through it, arrows can't get through it. And they would even use this formation to approach a city wall 
attacking a, a city that has uh, defenses and the high ground, confident in their shield to protect them. Inside, as they moved in this way, they could sometimes put pack animals, light-armored troops, cavalry even, placed inside of the center of the army, and they're covering over with shields. So if you couldn't lift a shield to interlock it in one of these formations, you could not fight as part of the Roman legion. Our faith protects each other. My faith protects you in some sense. And your faith might. Now, I'm not saved on the basis of your faith. But when we gather together, our faith builds on each other. Now we see a good kind of kindling of flame and burning hotter and hotter of our faith in, our trust in, our passion for serving Jesus Christ. When we gather together and lock shields, we can accomplish a whole lot more than a bunch of people out there as lone rangers. I think of the paralytics, friends. When, when Jesus was teaching in the house in Capernaum and suddenly the ceiling starts coming apart and there's dust in the air and this guy's lowered down through, he looks up and he sees the faith of this guy's friends. It seems like he maybe was out of faith himself and Jesus heals that man. We need one another. Today it's more and more common for a Christian to think they can go solo. Hey, I've got my shield. It's a good shield. I believe I've got faith. It's a very personal thing and I don't like to get... Mixing in with other people, you're far, far more exposed in that way. You are far more protected, locked together with your brothers and sisters. And finally, well, the shield, of course, is a defensive weapon by definition. It was also vital while pushing ahead. This is the way they would use it. Now, the shield is it's made of wood, of course, covered with uh, the, the leather, and then it's curved. On the top, there would be a rim of iron. On the bottom, the same. So that swords on the top aren't going to cut into it. The ground at the bottom is not going to mess it all up. And then in the middle, there was this big knob made of iron called an umbro. I guess that's what the shorts are named after. I don't know. But this thing would be right there. And, and as they would have an enemy attacking, they'd try to, to bring them into this wall of shields. And then they would stand firm and push them back and, and, and not let them get in, and then the next move was to jam that shield up into the enemy soldier, hopefully connecting that big umbro with his kisser, knocking him off balance, making him see stars and birdies and stuff, and then in that moment, they could attack with the sword or the spear, and then they would push forward. All these locked, interlocked shields pushing forward, making progress. By faith, we push forward, bringing the gospel into enemy territory. And our church is named after one of the first guys in America to say, you know, if we had a bunch of people connected together in some kind of mission organization, linking shields together, we could push a lot further, like maybe over the sea and maybe into Asia, maybe off into Burma, into India. This is how we link together and, and take back land from the enemy. The whole world is the Lord's and all that is in it. God's kingdom is no longer uh, bordered on this side by the sea and over on this side by the mountains. No, it goes to the very ends of the earth. And our command is to go out and announce that. And to reclaim with the shield of faith and all the armor of God that which belongs to our Savior. 
And so, as I said in 1 John 5, we read, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Our faith overcomes the world and the God of this world. Skipping ahead to chapter 5, the evil one, the prince of this world, Satan. In Hebrews 11, we saw many, many examples of faith overcoming the world, but we don't need to do incredibly amazing, heroic things to bring this about today. Proclaiming the gospel, holding tight, holding firm to faith, taking up the shield of faith. That is enough. God works through these things, ordinary means. And so I implore you, as you think of your faith and how it affects your day-to-day life, don't think of it as just this sprinkler. Not only something that you're glad it's there because you might need it later, but also a convenient place to hang your clothes should you need one. But think of it as the shield, this large, curved, protective item that we hold up that protects us from the enemy, that we can link with one another and push forward and bring the gospel to the ends of the earth so that those who are living in darkness can be set free and live in light. That those who are enemies of God can become his friends so that the kingdom of God will be extended so that the glory of God will be increased. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the shield of faith. I pray for anyone here who, who feels like all they've got is the buckler, something small, that their, their shield seems to be shrinking every day. Lord, I pray that you would, through your spirit, build their faith up that they would take their shield as it is and link it and interlock it with other believers and see how it becomes a mighty shield, a door shield, a thurios. Lord, how we can together in faith accomplish so much. Lord, as we sang, by faith the gospel goes forth. By faith the mountains will be moved. Lord, we know that faith, even though it looks insignificant like a mustard seed to the world, can accomplish great things if that faith is placed in you. Lord, we pray that each and every day we would take up the shield of faith, that we would extinguish the flaming arrows, all the flaming arrows of the evil one. In your holy name we pray. Amen.